This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. In Budget Week, our property editor Anne Ashworth will argue that help to buy could be the best thing George Osborne has ever done. In a bit of podcast synergy, we're joined by Gabriel Marcotti, host of the Times football podcast The Game, but today casting an eye over the race for the White House. But we start with Times senior political correspondent Lucy Fisher, who looks at the future of the Labour leader. Talk of a coup against Jeremy Corbyn is growing. Left's attack dogs have lashed out against the fated challenger Dan Jarvis. But does he, or any other moderate, stand a chance of toppling the left-wing party leader? And will Labour fare as poorly as the parliamentary party expect in May's elections? So what's your take on this, Lucy? There's a lot, a lot of people talk about a coup. Lots of, lots of Labour MPs you bump into around Westminster say he's got to go. But how? Well, that's the big question. Uh, and I think uh, today, Tuesday, um, being the Ides of March, is, a, is uh, very topical to talk about backstabbing, uh, treason, possible, uh, possible coup. The question of how is the problem so the rule book is unclear, uh, and this September there's going to be a big battle at the party conference to try and change the rule book to make sure that if he is challenged, Jeremy Corbyn can definitely run. At the moment, the parliamentary party, many of the moderate MPs are saying that uh, if there is a new contest, Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be able to stand, uh, wouldn't get onto the ballot unless he has the support of 51 MPs and MEPs. Because there's a lot of people that you talked about, Dan Jarvis there, but there were a lot of names thrown into the mix, but these are people who didn't frankly have the balls to throw their hat into the ring last, you know, less than a year ago and have a proper go and run against Jeremy. What makes them think that they'd be any better this time? Well, I think people think that um, Jeremy Corbyn has been such a disaster. Uh, Labour's economic credibility has gone through the floor, they'd argue. Um, There are concerns that the party will do appallingly in May. Um, So people that thought, well, I don't need to stand now, it'll probably be Andy Burnham or Yvette Cooper, a safe pair of hands, I can have a go down the road if we don't win the next election. They now realise that that this might be their last chance before they think Labour will be cast into electoral oblivion forever. Sorry, a question, what I don't quite get is, well, obviously his his, his ideas and and whatnot have... uh have unsettled a lot of people, he can always come back and say, well, look, nothing I've done effectively has been tested, right? Because it's not been put to an electoral test and it's not, they've not been in power. Yes, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely true. And so I think, in, in a way, people are predicting that the party will do appallingly in May and that will be their big chance to say, right, well, here we are, we have tested some of your ideas and they don't work, voters don't like it. 
But I also think it's worth challenging that assumption. Um, the polling shows that in the mayoral contest in London, a very big race, Sadiq Khan is likely to win. In council elections throughout England, m- most of the time people are voting on local individuals, many of whom are moderates. So I don't think that necessarily votes there will match up to the national picture, even if people don't like Jeremy Corbyn. But, uh, but you're right, I think there's a lot of assumptions that uh, haven't been tested yet. I also have a question. Dan Jarvis, where is his bedrock of support within the party? Has he yet garnered the number of people that he would need to stand by his side in order to make a challenge? I think certainly from the conversations I'm having, and and Matt, I'm sure you can say as well, he, he would definitely have support. I don't think necessarily the moderates have decided that he is certainly the candidate they'd all get behind. But if he goes for it, um, I have no doubt he'd get at least um, 50 MPs to, to back him, as well as donors. I mean, that's that's a big thing as well. You know, Martin Taylor, this hedge funder, um, has, has given him £16,000. There's a lot of talk of other people in the background ready to pour money to an, into a fund for him. And the more left-wing on the party, would they have a doctrinal objection to the guy? Well, one of the promising things about Dan Jarvis, um, as well as him having a very appealing backstory, he's a former paratrooper who's sort of fought in Afghanistan, is that he's not really been tested. We don't know terribly much about him and what he thinks. He's only been an MP for five years. Um, He did a big speech at Demos last week, which was viewed as the start of a coup, uh, in which he set out some of his politics. And in a way, it was, you know, we're used to sort of triangulation between Labour and the Tories. What Dan did last week was quite clever. It was triangulation between New Labour and the current left-wingers. Lots of talk of trade unions, the importance of workers' rights, but also a nod to business, him saying he's happy for shareholders to be paid dividends, for businesses to make profits, as long as workers benefit too. So so I think he is certainly tilting to the soft left uh, in a bid to try and garner some support from the left wing and, and get some of the Corbynistas to come over to his side in, in the event of a coup. So we're assuming the guy's strong enough to be able to withstand their you're just another Blair type diatribes of vitriol. I, I think, I think actually his bigger, his, his bigger challenge is that he doesn't really believe in anything. And it, some people say he's got a great backstory, but he hasn't got a particularly good front story. And, and in terms of what he believes in as a Labour politician. And, you know, he, he talks about sort of digital democracy and devolution and all that stuff, which, frankly, nobody cares about. Why the Tories, while the Tories talk about tax cuts and buying your house and childcare, you know, and in a way it's back to the sort of Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, just sort of bland noise washing over it. I think, I think he's got to do a lot to make himself interesting in a way that the Labour Party just hasn't done since since they lost power, I don't think. Why is it that Labour falls in love with those streams of abstract nouns that we got in the early days of Blair, that it was all beautiful and lovely and touchy-feely and hopey-changey and (laughs) instead really realise that actually people quite like a few measures that you can either be for or against? Well, I think think the the big difference is that Blair was really good at it. And he chose good, touchy-feely words, and he had some eye-catching policies to back it up with. And I think it's where your touchy-feely words become a cover-up for not having any ideas that it just becomes bland. Well, is it also the case that, from, from what I've seen, Corbyn's come out with with a lot of pledges that that appear to sort that appeal to sort of a, a type of hard left and nationalising everything and selling off the army and all the stuff. But the way you might want to counter that, you can either counter that with more centrist ideas, which presumably Burnham and Cooper tried and yeah. failed. Or maybe you just take, a, as you said, a touchy-feely approach and sort of distance yourself from, from somebody who I think is seen as very genuine but has a lot of 
has a lot of very concrete ideas. The guy looks to me electable. He's very photogenic. Who are we talking about now? I'm talking D- about Dan Jarvis. Dan Jarvis. Oh, for Sorry. I thought you were talking about uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn. I thought well, you'd, you'd gone completely I'm, mad. Taste very. <laughs> what I would say about Mr. Jarvis is that yes. incredibly photogenic. You could see him on the world stage, could you not? And what other things do people feel comfortable with in a leader that he wouldn't let them down on an inter- in an international event by wearing something odd or being in some way inappropriate. And that is a very, those kind of things that are going on in people's brains when they think about politicians are hugely important, but it's very, very difficult for pollsters to get a handle on them because they are mostly things that you don't want to articulate. Like, I think the guy wears really bad suits or I'm not so sure about the haircut but they are very deep and they are—they do influence people's thinking. Probably far more than the nitty-gritty of policies. I can imagine, too, there's also a, a certain appeal to having somebody who, who maybe isn't sort of a, a policy heavyweight at this stage because people might feel like, well, let's get him in and then we can you know, influence him or project him or if we just want to get elected, get the clever spin doctors to come up with something. I think, that, I think that's yeah. right because there was definitely a sense that last summer Liz Kendall, who was sort of on the right of the Labour Party when she ran for the leadership, she appeared to completely forget that her electorate last summer was the Labour Party. And if you go around slagging off the Labour Party, they won't vote for you. <laughs> and I think probably what they've learned from that is that actually your Dan Jarvises don't need a massive policy platform. They need to get the leadership and then they can worry about how they might win an election. And it's a, it's a two-stage process. Certainly. It's a long road ahead for whoever's Labour leader, whether it remains Jeremy Corbyn or Dan Jarvis, though. Given the concerns about Labour overspending the last time they're in government, I think they need to win, really win back credibility before people will even start taking seriously any of their claims. You know, saying, "Well, we'll nationalise this, we'll nationalise that, we'll reverse every single cut this Tory government has made." People will balk at it until they really come up with a credible spending plan, and, and John McDonnell is trying to do that now. Well, let's leave Labour there because we'll, I'm sure it's a subject we'll come back to. Gabriel, let's cross the Atlantic and talk about the race for the White House. I've been fascinated by the Republican primaries and the possibility of a brokered convention. It seems pretty obvious that what's left of the establishment, of the Republican establishment, is terrified by Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Uh, There are plenty of rumors that this is the end goal, uh, a brokered convention, which would basically mean, uh, in some ways, the party elders banding together, if nobody has an uh, an outright majority, and effectively uh, deciding around a table who the candidate will be. And I think it becomes a more realistic possibility if Marco Rubio wins his home state of Florida and uh, John Kasich does the same uh, in Ohio, especially since those are winner-take-all primaries in this incredibly Byzantine uh, primary system that we have in the States. On the flip side, there's also, I think, a strong concern by some that a brokered convention would ultimately alienate voters. If, if primaries are about letting the base decide, going back to a system where it's you know backroom deals, uh, that would alienate a lot of voters and maybe drive them away from, from the party for a long time. So th- this is really interesting because from watching the American race from the UK, it, just when you think you've got your head around how they choose their... <laughs> their candidate and the primaries and and the delegates and getting the numbers to get over the line then we find out that actually it could all be stitched up behind closed doors so that, and do you do you think this is now a, a realistic possibility of broker convention i think a lot will depend on on what happens tonight i mean i think for a long time the republican party 
and I think to some degree the Tea Partiers as well, sort of felt, all right, this is never actually going to happen. You know, <laughs> the guy is essentially a New York Democrat who's now saying all these crazy things to, to try to be, and to, to have an idea of what a Republican is, but he's not really going to ever get there. But of course, he keeps winning. So now it's a realistic proposition. I think it took them a while to adjust to the fact that Jeb Bush had dropped out and that Marco Rubio, I think, has some credibility issues with, with a lot of people. They obviously don't want Ted Cruz either because Ted Cruz is Mr. No, or they see him that way. Yeah. You know, people forget Ted Cruz created huge problems for his own party. You know, he forced his own uh, uh, House leader effectively to, to resign with his, you know, continuous refusal to to reach any sign of compromise. So now it's becoming a, a, a realistic possibility. And one thing to remember about the U.S. system is that there have historically always been safeguards in case the people make a mistake, <laughs> right? That's why we have an electoral college. You know, yeah. oh, it's fine and good. Everybody votes. One man, one vote. But then you're not voting for your president. You're voting for these people, for your betters, who then decide who the president is. And they usually go along with the majority, and they don't. It's the same thing with the conventions, you know. And this would be going back to sort of the, the, the pre-1972 uh, years when, you know, it was a bunch of senior people in a room putting a candidate forward. You know, yes, it seems like obviously these are the rules. They can bring it to this broker convention. But wouldn't political pressure prevent them trying to do, to do basically a stitch-up against Donald Trump by using these rather archaic party structures and going back to the party constitution? I, I think if, if Donald Trump had a base within the Republican Party, uh, possibly. But I think what you have to remember is that, and again, I'm not, I, I, I have a healthy mistrust of pollsters, but there's a lot <laughs> of suggestions that, you know, a lot of the people who are backing Trump in these primaries are not traditional Republican voters. So that's created an environment where, you know, maybe you can get away with it. And there's the other, uh, the, the other sort of big imperative that some people argue is that Trump would be what they call it, sort of a, a down ticket disaster. Because if you happen to be, you know, given the, the, the proportion of voters who simply just, you know, vote the entire ticket, if they're not going to vote Trump, if he's really going to get blown out by Hillary, then that's going to affect local races as well. And, and that's when obviously congressmen lose their jobs. My question would be, um, would Donald Trump take this lying down? Uh, I <laughs> mean, I would no. love to know what the procedures are if an irate Trump refuses to accept the, the decision made by those senior men behind closed doors. Uh, we no precedent for that then. Not a, no, and we'd be very much in uh, we'd be very much in uncharted waters. And do you think he'd run as an independent? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And that could really uh, stitch the Republicans up. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if he runs as an independent, then, you know, he's basically putting Hillary in the, in the, in the White yeah. House. Um, again, assuming she wins. We are very much in a very uncertain situation. There's a part of me that, that still says that Donald Trump doesn't really want to be president. And his whole plan <laughs> is he's going to stand up there at the Republican convention and, you know, put sort of two fingers up to everybody and say, like, nah, I don't want this. I don't need this. And to show you all how sick this system <laughs> is that, you know, I can come out of nowhere and, and do this. But I, I don't know. I'm not inside his head. I, but you do, you do raise an interesting possibility. You know, would he do that? The, the argument, again, in favor of that is still this idea that's thrown around in some Republican quarters that there's still the possibility that Hillary might be indicted. There's still the possibility that, you know, something could go wrong on the other side. And the, the sort of the, the third leg of this difficulty is that if there is a broker convention, right, Cruz is probably not viable for obvious reasons. So then you're looking at a case at your or Rubio that doesn't really set pulses racing. And it's difficult <laughs> to get other people who, who've attacked, especially Rubio, you know, in such harsh terms, uh, to get them behind him. So maybe you might see, you could try to see if, if Paul Ryan, if he senses weakness on, on, on Hillary's side. I think that's what the establishment is perhaps hoping for. More so, more so even than Kasich, is Hillary weakens, and then you can see if Paul Ryan wants to have another go. Let's set aside this baleful insight we've had into this great democracy to try and explore the narrative that Trump in public and Trump in private are totally different people, that in private he's cerebral, thoughtful, as you said, actually a New York Democrat, not a Republican at all. Now, I know that that is being put about to say that the, the reality of a Trump presidency would not be the thing we imagine. Should we believe that at all? I don't think there will be a Trump presidency at all. But if I want to make that, that leap of faith, I would imagine you would get something along the lines of what we've had in my own country in, in, in Italy when, when Silvio Berlusconi was elected. In other words, somebody who once he gets in becomes socially moderate. Immigration, I don't think, I mean, he might build the wall, but I think it's going to end there. He's not going to see mass deportations or anything. I, and I think it's just going to be somebody who, who thinks of themselves as... As a, as a sort of president stroke uh, chief executive. And well, there's an article in New York Times today actually drawing this sort of Berlusconi-Trump parallel. The, I think the one big difference, and I think it's a very relevant difference, is that part of the reason Berlusconi ran is because his television empire and his real estate empire were under threat. That's not the situation with Trump right now. He is not under threat. And that's what, for me, makes it so fascinating, so mysterious. You know, Why are you running? But it is, it is absolutely fascinating, and it is something that we will return to in the coming weeks. OK, Anne, in Budget Week, let's take a look at George Osborne. George Osborne would like to be remembered as the Chancellor who cleared the budget deficit. But I sense he wouldn't be unhappy if he was remembered as the Chancellor who gave us the housing aid scheme Help to Buy. It's attracted a barrage of criticism, but let's remember that Help to Buy has acted as a bank of mum and dad to thousands of young people without well-off parents. It's fairer than anyone thought, and a lot of the people who disapprove of it are just nimbies. So this was a sort of mid-coalition idea of George Osborne yeah. to help people who maybe could afford mortgage, the monthly mortgage repayments, but couldn't get the money yeah. together for, for a they deposit. 
I think it's been an extraordinary scheme. I mean, it's helped more than 100,000 people get onto the housing ladder. People whose parents can't give them a handout and people who are well able to afford the repayments on these loans. Because let's remember, stress tests are applied to their ability to afford the repayments. They have to prove that they would be able to afford the repayments on the loan if interest rates shot up. So it's not encouraging them into debt. It's been a way onto the housing ladder. It's also given a boost to construction. And I think it's been just fairer. And the idea is that the, the you, somebody wanted to buy a house, they put up 5% of the deposit, of the house price as a deposit, and the government sort of guarantees the next 5%. The, the guarantees right? is an interest-free loan for yeah. five years. The government's already made money, probably, on yeah. the scheme because of the rise in house prices since it arrived. And I think that the way people out there perceive it is very, very different from the way that that the Westminster Village and loads of commentators living in very nice cosy houses <laughs> without very big mortgages on them have described it. They wrote all this stuff about that it was going to cause an, an extraordinary house price spiral. It's mostly people, benefited people outside London who are probably paying less in their mortgage than they would do in the private rented sector, which would be the only place where they would be housed if it weren't for help to buy. Anne, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take issue with your contention that this is, you know, an amazing thing that should characterise um, George Osborne's um, time in number 11, because I think that for me and, and for many other millennials who are not on the housing ladder and don't have much prospect of getting on anytime soon, there's just a huge housing crisis out there. I agree that the scheme is good, but, you know, my understanding is the limit for the, the price of a house you can buy um, using help to buy is £600,000. That's close to the average house price in London. I mean, for me, the much bigger problem is that there is a huge, huge lack of supply uh, and, the, and the market has gone totally crazy. So it's fine if the government can help people out in some sense with help to buy, but it doesn't address the real problem of, of supply. I'm not saying it's been the solution to the housing crisis, which is the biggest political problem facing us. But it has encouraged house builders to get shovels into the ground. And without it, would they have done so? It's a very interesting question. It's mostly been outside London. We can't hold it to blame for the fast rise in London house prices. And I would say that for a lot of people, they just compare what they were paying and their mortgage and can paying in rent and think it's cheaper to have a loan and I will have my own place. I mean, it's not the total answer, but it is one of the better things that he has done and he might. that's how history might view it. The, the, the people who, who oppose this, what arguments do they bring? Are they arguing that this money could have been better spent or, or the risk associated with this uh, uh, with the scheme could be better spent elsewhere? Housing produces a whole set of complex emotions in the British <laughs> that I have to deal with every single day. And there is always a kind of visceral fear that increasing demand for housing is a really, really bad thing, which is kind of true unless the supply comes on. Uh, the, the supply is available, but there are an awful lot of people who are NIMBYs but don't want to acknowledge <laughs> it to themselves. And they think, oh, God, in that lovely village where I have a second home, will there be a new housing estate? Oh, heaven forfend. And I think an awful lot of those, frankly, 
egotistical, selfish views are expressed in complex economic arguments that don't really <laughs> withstand any scrutiny whatsoever. It's interesting, actually. I've got uh, a lot of family in Somerset, and a couple of weeks ago I was down and visiting lots of them, and driving past new housing developments, they've all got signs at the front saying help to wow. help to buy available and it is one of those schemes there were so many schemes announced by chancellors at budgets yeah. catchy little phrases which never take off but this does seem to be one which is getting cut through and people he- people completely get it they know what it is they know and they're taking advantage of it so if another career beckons for George Osborne, he could be a brand manager because he's managed to extend help to buy to all kinds of things, including the help to buy ISA, the help to buy ISA. which has been hugely popular. And over the weekend, we had help to save of uh, young people being yes. given extra. They all seem to realise that this is a good yeah. a good bit of brand. And actually, it takes us back to the argument we were making earlier about the Tories at the moment are much better at coming up with this sort of user-friendly, consumery policy stuff, which isn't about devolution. You know, they could market confectionery, couldn't they? I mean, I'm sure that George Osborne thinks, if I clear the deficit, I'll never be in number 10. Love to clear the deficit, but, you know, the, the measures involved would just be too harsh for the nation to contemplate. But this is, I'm not saying this is a massive thing, but I think it's a small and good thing that he has done for, for we write the, the case studies, it's a, it's a teacher and his teacher girlfriend who've been able to buy. And it's a recognition, if not a solution, to the intergenerational inequalities that we have in our society. I mean, I, I think uh, you, you know, absolutely right. It, it is a good thing. My concern is just that it's slightly used as a sticking plaster for acting in a much more radical reformist sense. Uh, sense in, in the housing market, and, and I, I agree. Outside London, it's it's been far more beneficial to your ordinary worker. I mean, in London, some of my friends, um, one of my best mates, who's a corporate lawyer, has just used it, and it's and it's those people in really high-paying jobs that are thinking, "Great, now I can get on the housing ladder." But but for, for most sort of most workers, actually having a five five percent deposit won't get you anything in London. You know, not even a sort of one-bed dungeon in Penge East. Well, for that, George Osborne needs to make sure that ex-public sector land can be built on far more easily Mm -hmm. than it is at present. Every single budget, we hear that loads of public sector land is going to become freely available and people are going to be building on it by tomorrow evening. It isn't so. If you speak to house builders, the biggest problem they face is getting their hands on ex-public sector land that's standing derelict and should have homes on it. He needs to solve that one, and that's what we will be watching. And the only the only downside to that, of course, is it does mean more pictures of George Oswald in high vis trying his hand at bricklaying. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, what I love I'm big, is that, I'm a big fan of a George Oswald high vis picture. Yeah, well, I think they're really rather good. But just does he actually fool anybody that he has construction skills? Because he'd be earning really, really well in the construction sector if he could be a project manager or if he was a particularly skilled brickie. He could or give plumbers. Poli- plumbers in London yeah, can earn over a hundred thousand. I mean, he could give up politics tomorrow. Well, very good. Well, we've almost uh, managed to get through the whole podcast without talking about Europe. Uh, So I'm going to ruin that and turn to the small matter of the red box sweepstake. Each week, I'm asking panellists to predict the outcome of the referendum by saying what percentage of their vote they think Remain will get correct to two decimal places. The average so far of panellists on the podcast is 56%, and from red box emailers is 47%, and on Twitter is 52%. So there's the wisdom of crowds. Forget polls, forget 
people who know what they're doing. Let's have a guess. Let's pluck a figure out this. And we'll start with you. What, what percentage of the vote do you think remains oh, going to get? You know, it's so unfair. If you're called Anne Ashworth, you always have to go first for everything. It's like school. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know well, why. We can start, I we can think start life at the other is end of unfair. The right, I'm going to go because I something that isn't to the mean. Why should I trend to the mean? I'm going to go for 54.52%. 54.52%. Lucy? 53.01. 53.01. And Gabriel? I'm kind of cynical and a bit of a conspiracy theorist, and I don't think the people who matter allow the populace to go and pursue really, really bad, stupid ideas. And I think David Cameron would love to have sort of an emphatic score on this one. So I'm going to go 59.8. That's very close. I think I've gone for 59.5. Oh, and we will keep updating this uh, during uh, between now and June the 23rd. And you can enter your own guess by emailing redbox at thetimes.co.uk or using the hashtag redboxsweepstake on Twitter. On that note, there's just time to say thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or through your Android device to have it delivered automatically every week. You can sign up to my Redbox morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. But for now, from Anne, Lucy, Gabriel and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.